Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. In today's episode, I have my friend, uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, um, from his house in Skye um, as my guest. And I'll just tell you a little bit about Ian before uh, we, we start. Uh, I met Ian through his brother, Nigel, a long time ago when I was teaching at Winchester College. Um, and so we've known each other for nearly 40 years. And at the time, Ian was a fellow of All Souls College, Oxford, and he was writing his first book, Against Criticism, um, which is, is a fascinating book on English literature. And, and since then, he then turned to medicine, and he's an, a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and has extensive clinical and neuroimaging and neuroscience experience, which led to his seminal book, The Master and His Emissary. Ian is committed to the idea that mind and brain can be understood only by seeing them in the broadest possible context, that of our whole physical and spiritual existence and of the wider human culture in which they arise, and the culture which helps to mold and is in turn molded by our minds and brains. This thought is reflected in his book and also in his, the book he's just finished called The Matter of Things, which we hope will come out in the not too distant future. Uh, so Ian, it's a, it's a real pleasure to uh, have you uh, on Imaginal Inspirations. And I'd like first to, to ask you if there was a, a shaping moment in your choice of work, and perhaps most also in relation to literature, as well as your change of course into medicine. Yes, I went into literature, so to speak, by accident. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I had to sit the Oxford entrance exam in some school subject, uh, and I wanted to do theology and philosophy, uh, which weren't uh, school subjects. So um, I sat it in English, and uh, the, when I went for my viva, they said, you can't, you can't do theology and philosophy. It's not an honours degree. In those days, it wasn't an honours degree. And they said, you must do an honours degree. You're good at English. Come and do it. So I did. And in the course of that, there was certainly an inspirational moment, which was that I had a supervisor for my, uh, what I thought at that stage would be my thesis. And uh, she was Rachel Trickett, who was the principal of St. Hugh's College. And uh, I went one evening when we were talking about um, the caesura in Goldsmith. And uh, <laughs> there are more fascinating topics. <laughs> and... She said something about the movement of Wordsworth's verse. And she said, let, just let, let me read you the opening 110 lines or whatever it is of Tintin Abbey. And I almost said to her, look, we've, this was an hour. We've, we've talked for two hours because when we got going, we kind of did. And it's nearly supper time. And I know that poem very well. And fortunately, I didn't. I just sort of sat and listened. And I thought, I have never heard this poem before. And it completely changed my life. It was the closest thing to an epiphany that I had. And I remember walking down the Woodstock Road back to college. And, you know, it, it really was the world was transfigured and my feet hardly seemed to touch the ground. So that was a very definite <coughs> moment. After a while, I realized that I didn't want to carry on my career teaching English, not because I didn't enjoy the literature, because I thought there was something wrong with what we were doing to it. And that eventuated in the book Against Criticism that you mentioned. But also I felt that there was something about the way in which we disembodied it. 
And at that time, I was reading Oliver Sacks' Awakenings, which had just come out. And I thought, my goodness, here is somebody who has some very illuminating things to say about the relationship between mind and body, far more interesting than the philosophers in the seminars that I went to, who were all just too disembodied in their approach. And I thought, now that would be fascinating to experience what happens to people when something goes wrong in their brain and changes their world, or, or something goes wrong in their world and changes their brain. So... Um, I want to work there, and that means studying medicine, so I did. And so that was a, a, an important career-changing moment. I suppose the other one I should mention is that I just happened to go one day when I was at the Institute of Psychiatry in London to a, a lecture by a man I'd never heard of uh, on the right cerebral hemisphere. And I was just intrigued because we'd heard nothing really much about the right hemisphere. And the, the speaker was John Cutting, and that was, getting to know John was a, was a life-changing experience. It was he who opened my eyes to the whole richness of the issue of difference between the hemispheres, not just as a technical issue, as it was so often um, discussed, if it was discussed at all, but as something that actually had philosophical meaning. And so that set me off on the path towards the Master of His Hemisphere. Uh, fascinating. So would you say that John... John was an important mentor for you. And, and did you have other mentors who, who were important in other respects and early in your career? I, I wouldn't say John was a mentor exactly. He was, a, he was a, a marvelous inspiration. The person who I most think of as a mentor was my housemaster at Winchester, Martin Scott. And he was enormously important in my life because, of course, he was effectively um, in loco parentis for me for very you know, important years of development between about 12 and 17. So, and he just was so important to me. It wasn't so much any one thing that he said, but it was his example. It, it was one of those things as so often that you learn from being around a person. Um, in the way that um, in the past, craftsmen used to learn their skill from actually living with the master. And it was rather like that, that I saw in him a number of things, but I just to put a finger on a bit of it, that it's perfectly possible to be a, a, a person deeply interested in spiritual matters and to have a very good sense of humor and sense of proportion. And that to take life very seriously is not incompatible with with, with laughing a good deal about it. Um, in fact, I constantly see his face creasing up in a laugh when I think about him and his smiling blue eyes, very blue eyes, a very large person, a bit like a sort of medieval abbot in my imagination. Yes. An effect exactly. that was increased by, by the fact that his hair had happened naturally to grow into a tonsure. <laughs> but but he, he taught me a, an attitude to life, um, a whole philosophy, if you like, that isn't in words. So he was very, very important. Yes, and I, I remember you telling me um, that when, when, when you were in his div um, and you'd finished everything you needed to do, he said, would you like um, early Christian heresies or Victorian murders? I, <laughs> I think you said both. I remember writing to Martin uh, when I knew he was dying uh, and he actually wrote back because I like to be able to write to people if I know they're dying and say, you know, celebrate our friendship. And he said, yes, I have a very superior form of cancer. 
And, and so this is exactly the kind of humor, I think, that you were talking yes. about. In his last letter to me, and he spoke to me just before he died, but he sent me a letter, a very funny letter from hospital. He must have been in quite some pain, really. But he said, I've just received a bill from my physician, which includes a prosthesis. I looked this up in the dictionary. It turned out to be the ostension of the host during Eucharist in the Orthodox Rite, something I felt I was not guilty of. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, my, my next question is about books, uh, Ian. Of course, you and I have read a great many books. But could you, could you pick out a couple that have been uh, important uh, in shaping your thinking? Well, it's very hard, isn't it? Because there's so many. And what goes to shape one's life as so many influences. But I think that if I had to choose one, it might very well be Wordsworth's prelude. I mean, it's very hard to convey how important Wordsworth is to me. I was very, very pleased to discover that he was also very important to A.N. Whitehead, who is a oh. philosopher I very much admire. And he used to read Wordsworth every day. And that really um, fascinates me because I think his philosophy is so in tune with mine, if mine is in tune with him. It's one of those things you have to sort of click with. To begin with, you don't sort of see what it is. But once the click happens, Wordsworth's Prelude is just an incalculably rich resource, which just altered my whole way of thinking and feeling uh, altogether in the world. And I think another important book for me um, was reading Alan Watts's uh, Tao, The Watercourse Way. It introduced me really to a whole vision of thinking about the world, which I have never lost. Very, very, very interesting. Well, we certainly share those. And, and I, you put me onto the prelude when I, I started reading it uh, as a result of um, reading Against Criticism. Well, of course, there was John's books, particularly the book Principles of Psychopathology, which is the book in which he laid out the differences between the hemispheres. That, that certainly had a vast impact on me. I read it in two weeks on the island of Paxos. And uh, it was so gripping that I hardly wanted to put it down and go for a swim. You know, I just wanted to keep <laughs> reading. But um, I, I think that latterly, the things that have really influenced my thinking about consciousness have been, and I read them about the same time, and they were synergistic, uh, was um, William James's A Pluralistic Universe, um, which was the lectures he gave in Manchester in 1909, and a compilation of Bergson called The Creative Mind. And it's been very rare for me in recent years, since the 20s or 30s, to read a book and just mark, 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 all the way. In fact, I don't like to mark in a book at all, but I was so excited. I was just, you know, there we are. This is it. Yes, yes. And I just kept, I, and the number of times I said yes, yes, when I was reading both those books was uh, astonishing. How fascinating. I must, I must try and get hold of a, <clears throat> a pluralistic universe. So I have most of William James, but I don't have that particular book. So I will, I've just made a note of it. How does your understanding of consciousness relate to you know, the way you live your life? Obviously, you live in a very beautiful place. Your walks and your views, they must be an important part of your daily life. They are. And in fact, I chose to live here partly because it is true to and enables a sense of how one's individual mind or consciousness relates to the world. 
it's so difficult to break out of the idea that there is sort of a world in here and a world out there. And I think if you're on the tube it's in London, it's particularly difficult to break out of. But here, it's obvious that, as it were, there is no hard and fast distinction. Obviously, that, that would take too long for me to unpack that is in my new book. But the fact is that they are seamless. And the, the world that is, as it were, experienced by me and my experience of it are aspects of one and the same thing. I do not have the external manipulating consciousness of the left hemisphere. I have this sense of not just unity, individualization is very important at the same time as unification, but this sense of a seamlessness. Beautifully put. And I think Bertrand Russell maybe talks a little bit about the same thing when he's when he's talking about the Cornish cliffs in a, a letter to um, Ottilie Morell, said, uh, only the gulls are my friends down here because they are not acquiring money or power. <laughs> uh, and that, yeah. that sense of freedom, I, I'm sure you get a strong sense of that um, you know, mm. when you're walking there. And, and the, the, the seagull, the gulls, they do have that. And if you can kind of enter into that, there's a great sense of spaciousness that arises. You put the word into my mouth, spaciousness. It's a feeling I get actually when I return to Scotland in general after being in England. You cross the border and somehow you can feel, not just there is a sense of largeness around you, but you can sort of feel your your, your rib cage opening, your soul sort of expanding as you go north. And particularly here, one is constantly in that state. People who come here, uh, it takes them a day or so to get used to it and they just all comment on how extraordinary the impact of the place is yes very interesting well i think that's uh, as the seamlessness is important in terms of your work is, is there any other experience important experience that you like to mention at this point and um, because I've, you've talked about quite a few um, formative experiences but i don't know whether there's any anything else that comes up well i i haven't talked about one particular experience which was the very first time when i was probably 13, that I heard Talis's Lamentations. Ah. And that actually, again, that just completely polaxed me. I, I just, it's very hard to think of anything else that I've heard that, and I love music, but that was just absolutely mind-altering. And, and I've never looked back in my admiration for Talis. And, of course, I then began to explore the whole period. Talis and Bird and, and um, Lassus and Palestrina and Victoria and so on. Uh, so that was a very, very important moment. And I think probably hearing Opera 110 of Beethoven being played by Peter Tomling uh, was another. Uh, I'd never heard it. It's the second to last uh, of uh, Beethoven's piano sonatas, as you know, and uh, completely amazing experience. So those were also mind-altering experiences that hit very, very deep in me. That's very, very interesting because I, I can think of two moments, um, similar moments for, with, with Bach. Um, and the first one was the Passacaglia and Fugue in King's College, um, Cambridge. Um, and there was a particular moment in the fugue um, where I just had this incredible feeling of ecstasy. Uh, and mm. the second one um, was in, in Notre Dame um, in Paris, um, where... 
on, on a Sunday evening, they have um, the, an organ recital at 6.30 before the mass. And it was the organist from Montreal Cathedral, and he was playing the Dorian um, Toccata and Fugue. During the fugue, I, I was just, you know, in that state that you described. It's quite, quite extraordinary. It's a transporté, as the French would say. And yes, I remember another yes. occasion where, where I, 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 I was coming from Brussels to Tours in the late 1980s, and I dragged a suitcase, quite a heavy one, across um, the Place Notre Dame to go to the organ recital, you know, to fit it into my schedule, as it were. And there was little notes saying, Les grandes orgues sont en panne. The great <laughs> organ is not working this evening, which is a very disappointing moment. So music is <laughs> very important. It's T.S. Eliot you know, becoming the music as long as the music lasts. So yes. just coming uh, towards the end, is there a proverb or maxim that uh, you is very important to you in, in terms of how you live and how you understand life? Well, yes. There are a couple of Zen sayings that at first don't sound very exciting, but to me are terribly important. One is, yes, but. <laughs> and, the other, and the other that goes with it is, not always so. And these gel with something else which I knew from my teens, but never appreciated at the time. In fact, I thought it was very boring and anti-life, which was the, the famous words of wisdom that were inscribed on the temple at Delphi, Medan Agan, moderation in all things, nothing in excess. And to a teenager, that is, just sounds like, how boring. But as I got older, and particularly in the mess we're in at the moment, with strident voices simplifying vastly complex issues about how a society should work, all these things, I want to say to them, you know, we've gone too far. There's another side to everything. Every, every good has a dark angel. Every um, misery has a, 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 a light in it. And the, we ought to be more able to say yes, but. Very good. Uh, and nuanced, as, as, as always. And Ian, if you're looking back on your, your younger self, is there anything that you would advise your younger self from the point, of, point you've got to now? Yes, um, don't take yourself so seriously and um, have more confidence. <laughs> I, I, I was um, a slightly monkish uh, young man and um, I sort of missed um, gathering rosebuds um, Well, <laughs> I may have been able to do so. And I think that, you know, to have um, had more confidence as a young man would have been very helpful. Uh, and I don't know why I don't have much confidence because I, you know, my, my parents were very supportive. My school teachers were massively supportive and affirming, but I've never had confidence really. I think one's born with it or not. And, you know, of all ludicrous things in a way, I can't believe that I can write a good book, you know, and I now have to say, well, look, lots of people think you have. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to go back to my younger self and say, you know, lighten up, have fun, take the opportunities and feel more confident in yourself. I, I think that's good advice for anyone, Ian. Uh, so thank you so yeah. much um, for coming on Imaginal Inspirations. And uh, I'm sure the listeners will have enjoyed this as much as I have. <laughs>